I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun. You just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll be going back once again to track planning, but this time to tell you how to research a prototype. last few episodes, a miserable slate of homework coming from my first semester of graduate school kind of, uh, swamped me. Um, uh, but I thought after all of that was done that I could finally start talking to you about what was involved in actually constructing a layout. I had the whole benchwork episode written up and was going through it to add and subtract points when I had the ever-so-ill-fated idea to think about my own layout. You see, uh, the Kennebec Central, as I previously described, was never the perfect prototype for me. I always did consider it as some sort of interim project, a stepping stone to something greater, eventually. And especially after moving farther away from it to central Pennsylvania, such that I couldn't visit the spots in a weekend, I started to feel, well, distanced from it, literally and metaphorically. As such, but also in part due to a lack of time, the layout still has yet to be reassembled. A few weeks ago, in researching what might be a better option to model, I had a flash of insight that I could modify what I had already built to represent a similar but local to Pennsylvania prototype that I had just discovered, the Cornwall and Lebanon Railroad's smaller sibling, the Mount Gretna Narrow Gauge Railroad, all five and a smidge miles of it. Anyway, back to the podcast. In writing the Benchwork episode, I was ever so foolish to think about how I built my Benchwork. As my construction techniques and timeline were passing through my head, I chuckled to myself thinking, well, I can't actually build anything yet, because what I do build will depend on what the prototype research turns up. Then I paused for a moment, and realized what I had done. I had given you two long episodes on the minutiae of pike-level model railroad design, but I had completely neglected to give you all the tools you need to actually implement these techniques on real railroads. <sighs> this long and complex train of thought lasted only a few milliseconds, and was immediately followed by a burst of laughter that echoed throughout my entire home, then a sob, as it meant even more writing for me before I could get another episode out. So, that's why I'm here. Now, even if you don't intend to model a prototype for your first model railroad, I still encourage you to listen to this episode. As stated before, most model railroaders I know are modeling a prototype or proto-freelancing, and this is not without reason. Many people consider it more rewarding to model something that actually did or could have existed. If nothing else, it usually lends us more social credibility, rather than saying, Oh, I just play with trains. At the end of the day, when you're building your layout, it also helps significantly to have a good understanding of the geography of where the railroad ran, as it can lead to a more convincing and realistic representation. Think of it this way. You can't just build a mountain railroad, as there are many different types of mountains and railroads that ran through them. The White Mountains of New Hampshire are very different from the Berkshires of Massachusetts, not to mention the Cascades of the Pacific Northwest, the American Rockies, the Canadian Rockies, the Appalachians, the Ozarks, and the Sierra Nevadas. 
and these are just the domestic mountain ranges. Think of the Sierra Madres, the Scandinavian Range, the Alps, the Scottish Highlands, or the Mongolian Altai Mountains. All of these regions are wildly different, not only in their particular geologic and scenic differences, but also in their local societal, corporative, and bureaucratic culture and history. And all of these things influence wide-sweeping parts of the modelable landscape, including, but not limited to, the economy, town plats and size, dominant architectural styles, railroad tonnage, railroad equipment and state of repair, railroad operating practices, ha, huh, even the language. Thus, even if you don't want to model a prototype railroad faithfully, placing your pike in the real world as opposed to a nondescript freelance world that has no relation to maps of the real world will make a much better model railroad. If nothing else, understanding how prototypes operate can only benefit your own modeling efforts and may enlighten you on other areas of your life, such as the history of local railroads. So, with all of this out of the way, here's how to research prototype railroads. The first thing you'll want to do is to choose a prototype. Of course, there are a near-infinite number of railroads to choose from, so you'll have to narrow it down a bit. If you already have a specific big-name railroad in mind, uh, such as the New York Central, the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, the Atlantic Coast Line, the Union Pacific, or something like that, then you're already set. But if not, you can start by choosing a region or several that interest you. Break the region down into the states that it's composed of, and then identify all of the railroads that ran through that state. You can do this by several methodologies. The simplest is to look at the Wikipedia list of, depending on your era, either the currently operating or defunct railroads in that state. These lists aren't guaranteed to be completed, and many smaller railroads may not have comprehensive pages, but, more often than not, nearly all of the railroads in that state of note are represented at least in name, and using these lists is the simplest jumping-off point. If you wanted more robust list sources, most states have some sort of comprehensive book containing business information statistics on all of the railroads that ever existed in that state. The prime examples in my mind are the Encyclopedia of Western Railroad History, Volumes 1 through 4, which collectively cover every state west of the Mississippi, but also many eastern states have similar publications. Another excellent source of prototypes is Railroad Commission maps. Nearly every state had, at one point, a Railroad Commission, which set about by making comprehensive statewide maps of all railroads that existed within. You can usually download these gigabyte-sized map files from university or state library archive websites. The Railroad Commission maps have the advantage of giving you the shape, size, and location of the railroads to which the names are attached, but if you are open to prototypes of multiple eras and regions, they do only represent a specific state at a specific snapshot in time, so you will have to look at multiple. Anyway, once you have your list, it's time to look it over for prototypes. If you have a Wikipedia or book list, follow up on the more interestingly named or dated railroads. And if you have a map, look around it for railroads or railroad divisions that are in the right region and size for what you plan to model. At this stage, I myself often end up making a spreadsheet to quantitate the railroads for their modelability. Of course, I'm a scientist. It's my profession to quantitate things. In the far left column, I have the name of the railroad, in the far right, a summation function, and all of the columns in between are numerical grades of certain qualities. Though yours are certainly allowed to differ, the ones that I look at when examining a railroad are the type of railroad, whether it's a mainline, branchline, shortline, or switching terminal operation, the number of years it was in operation, because the longer the railroad was around, the more complete records it leaves, 
Whether or not it was operating during the era I wish to model, the number of websites it has devoted to the subject, the number of photographs it has available online, the number of books written about it, the mileage, the number of locomotives it had, the number of stations it had, the number of branches the railroad had, whether or not detailed maps exist, whether or not there are helpful historical societies, the type of scenery the railroad had, the type of commodities it carried, whether or not the locomotives it had exist in model form, whether or not I already own one of those locomotives, whether or not it had a particular locomotive type that I really wanted to have, and a few other random categories. For most of the spectrum-type qualities, such as mileage, stations, and branches, I would give points for being in an optimum range for what I was looking, for example, one or two branches, and penalize for being outside of it, for example, no or greater than three branches. For the categorical qualities, such as commodities carried, the type of railroad, the types of locomotives, I would simply award points for desirable attributes. For example, if a railroad carried coal, lumber, passengers, and general freight, the commodities I was interested in, they would be awarded points. Uh, another example, if the railroad had locomotives that are not available from manufacturers in my scale, then they would be penalized points. Obviously, this is a lot to look through for every railroad, so my advice is to examine every railroad on the list for the simple categories, like mileage and dates of operation, first, then narrow it down to no more than the top 100 choices, and analyze for all of the later, more extensive categories. Another note, be careful about how you weight things. You might really want to have a particular locomotive and give a railroad a thousand points if it did, but this significantly outweighs the fact that the railroad might be 800 miles long. As much as I can, I try to stick to negative one, zero, and positive one for all of the attributes so that I can find the all-around best prototype. Once you have a list up and running, all you have to do is plug away at it for a month or so. When you've graded all of the aspects of your potential prototypes, rank the total column to sort descending. Your optimum prototypes should float right to the top, because they have the highest scores. In part because of the potential for human error and biases, I seldom stick with the very top prototype. Instead, I choose the top 10 to 20 railroads, and then go back and look at them in more detail. This is where the emotional side of things come into it. Does the prototype capture your imagination? Is it pretty? Would it be fun to model and operate? Can you realistically do it with the space and resources you have? Etc. Make sure you choose wisely, because this choice will likely stay with you for a few years, and it's best to have some guiding fascination to shine light on the difficult challenges. Once you have chosen a prototype, you need to start researching it in detail. You can do this by way of libraries, document archives, maps, and other sources. Often, the best way to start is at a library. Local libraries, though sometimes hit and miss, are usually good resources on local railroad history and will yield at least a few good books on the subject. The top three or four largest universities in the state will usually have very well-stocked libraries on the subject, as well as special or archival collections containing historical treatises that can give you more detail. As often as you can, it is usually best to go straight to the source. Major university special collections, the Library of Congress, state or local historical societies, or railroad-specific historical societies will often have extensive collections of actual documents from the railroad's corporate history. These may include photographs, purchase orders, business meeting notes, accounting spreadsheets, promotional pamphlets, and, if you're really lucky, track charts and blueprints. If they still exist, 
Such historic document archives will always be the best resources for reconstructing every inch of a railroad. Though we may be biased towards maps, plans, and pictures, don't ignore the other contents of the archives. Especially where maps are unavailable, financial documents can still help to piece together the operations of a railroad. Most importantly, look for car count reports, detailing how many cars and of what lading were delivered to and from each city along the line. For example, if ten cars of shingles left a town in a particular month, you can infer that the railroad there served a small sawmill. This being said, though, historic maps will always be the most desirable product of time spent researching. Fire insurance maps produced by the Sanborn Company helped to insure nearly all buildings of nearly all towns in America since about the 1880s. Many document archives, such as those mentioned above, will also have a Sanborn Maps section. If you have a list of all the towns on your railroad, you should stop by your local university's special collections and root around for their fire insurance map files for these locations. If you lack finer detail maps, historic USGS maps of the 15-minute series cover nearly every single corner of every single state dating back to at least the 1920s, usually much earlier in select locations. These maps show the terrain in 1 to 62,500 scale, which is significantly more detailed than the region or state-sized maps most often available, and usually shows simplifications of the track arrangements at each location. The more detailed 7.5-minute series usually can get down to individual track details and can thus aid in perfect reconstructions of railroad track diagrams, but these didn't become comprehensive until about the 1970s. Though most modelers of historic railroads will have to compromise with a low detail, the 15-minute map series nonetheless is incredibly useful for showing the locations of all the railroad features, which is helpful for getting a rough idea of what was along the line, especially for the intertown regions, which are usually less well covered by pictures and detailed track diagrams. I happen to have a link to the USGS Historic Map search engine system that I will be posting on the website under this episode's show notes, because getting to it from their main website was painfully complicated. If you are one of the unlucky fellows whom chose a prototype that doesn't have surviving records or is sparsely accounted for in the map record, all is not yet lost. The simplest way to get a rough idea of where the railroad went is to open Google Maps to a location where the railroad was known to be and turn on the topographic mode. Railroad rights-of-way were often elevated from their surroundings to aid in drainage, and you'd be surprised how long these berms stick around. In cities, in addition to the topographic irregularities, you can also look for something called scarchitecture, where buildings were built around obstacles, but then the obstruction got removed. Scarchitecture can take the form of buildings at odd angles because a railroad passed by or cornered around it, tracks still laid in the street, weirdly shaped alleys, or even more obvious vestiges such as railroad depots or freight houses that are now used for other functions. Now, this method doesn't give you exact track arrangements, but I've used this method to trace out railroad rights-of-way for over 50 miles. This will absolutely help you to identify branches that didn't make it onto the larger-scaled maps, and you might even be able to infer which industries were served by how the railroad cut through the cities. If you have absolutely nothing else to go off of, this is a great way to increase what you know about your railroad of interest. Another odd source that not many people think to use are historic magazine articles. 
If something was written contemporarily to a railroad's existence, especially by the hobby press, there might be some tidbits of information that were otherwise lost to time. If nothing else, you can usually get the issue of interest off of eBay for under $10, and it could give you some new leads to follow up on. Finally, arguably the most important source of information for researching a railroad is the people who worked on it or lived nearby. Often, old railroaders are incredibly friendly and more than willing to tell you all you want to know about their time on the rails. There is no better one-stop source for everything that was relevant to a particular railroad. Local historical societies will usually know who these people are and connect you to them, and when I meet with them, I always give them a gift card and make a donation to the historical society or an organization of their choice in exchange for their time. If your prototype happens to be an old one, act now. You don't want the obituary to beat you to the meeting. If you wish to faithfully replicate a prototype railroad, all of these strategies should help you assemble the following. You should have at least a rough idea of the track diagrams for all of the major points along the line, a list of the industries served by the railroad, at least rough representations of the important railroad proximate structures and buildings, an idea of the terrain and geography surrounding the railroad, a list of major pieces of equipment owned by the railroad and the dates that they were in operation, and operating schemas for the railroad, such as schedules, the types of trains they ran, the frequency, etc. Once you have all of this, you will be able to adequately build a representation of a real railroad. However, through all of this, I cannot stress how important it is that you not succumb to what is called analysis paralysis. This is where you get bogged down doing so much prototype research that you never end up starting construction on your pike. I, myself, am probably way more guilty of this than most, especially with my desire to check every railroad in all of history for being the perfect prototype. Thus, I know the dangers of analysis paralysis all too well. If you are lucky enough to fall in love with a particular prototype, understand that there will always be compromises in modeling it. Sometimes you won't be able to find track diagrams of certain locations or photos of particular pieces of equipment, and unfortunately this is just a fact of life when it comes to corporate research. It infrequently benefits businesses to keep around arcane records of their past, and so, quite often, the perfect document that you are looking for ended up in a turntable pit on fire in the 1950s, as did so many others. The sooner you come to terms with these compromises, the more fun you will have in this hobby. If you are encountering some blocks with comprehensiveness, then there are several established compromises you can take to have a happier experience or to start construction sooner. First, and most simply, if there's a specific town that you're missing information on, you can always leave it blank, run a mainline through the area, and then fill it in later when you discover more about it. However, for small beginner layouts, this will probably cause more glaring omissions, and probably isn't the best solution. The option that most people choose to go with is to proto-freelance. There are two general types of proto-freelancing. The first, less prototype-faithful option, is to take elements of actual but disparate railroads and combine them into one pike that best fits your interests, but also still functions like a real railroad did and is still at least somewhat grounded in reality. Examples of this include cherry-picking actual railroad locations and stitching them together, or, more commonly, building a fictionalized branch of a real railroad. A famous example of this was Tony Custer's Allegheny Midland, which was a fictionalized Appalachian branch line of his favorite prototype, the Nickel Plate Road. 
Custer traced out the entire route of his Allegheny Midland so that it still ran through actual cities and, in a few cases, even served actual industries. It just so happens that the railroad didn't actually exist in reality. The other, more prototype faithful option is to model an actual line of an actual railroad, but smudge the details a bit for your benefit. This could include deleting cities for which you don't have data, adding branch lines, modeling the railroad before or after it existed, or even something so simple as adding your favorite locomotive to an otherwise perfect representation of a real railroad that didn't actually own that locomotive. For example, in my case, I'm planning on building the Mount Gretna Narrow Gauge Railway, which was mostly a very simple out-and-back tourist operation. Once I'm finished building the main portion of the railroad, if it turns out that I'm getting bored running trains around over and over again, I'm going to proto-freelance a coal branch line down the other side of the mountain to give me something else to do. Another notable aspect of layout design, which is worth bringing up here, is that of selective compression. In nearly all aspects of model railroading, there is more of what we want to put in our available space than we have space available. Thus, modelers don't get to model 100 plus miles of railroad without cutting some bits out. There are many ways to selectively compress your prototype into a modelable form. Most obviously, you could compress the distances between towns, but you could also reduce the number of tracks in a yard, decrease the size of a city, combine two tiny intermediate cities into one, shrink the size of a major building, or just outrightly delete towns and industries. As the name implies, though, this compression is selective, such that enough of the original prototype location remains to be recognizably that location, and to still operate the same way. In many ways, you can view the research phase of building a model railroad like any other aspect of the hobby, something fun and rewarding in and of itself that you can specialize on. However, others do view it as a drudgery and obstacle to their building of a model railroad. Whatever your fancy, it's wise to view it with a little bit of each attitude. You could look at it as if you're building a representation of a real railroad. These were actual things that existed in the past, and you're trying to do justice to the people who made that railroad run. But, on the other hand, research does also take time and may halt construction. You can't have a representation of a real railroad if you don't actually get to build it. Whatever you decide to do, and however you decide to approach it, don't forget these two things. To have fun while you're researching your prototype, and to eventually get around to building your model railroad. I hope that, with this episode, I have shown you how to choose and research a prototype railroad of your own. If you have a question or comment, want to join the Facebook community, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening to my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary for this episode is... Riding the rods. To suspend oneself under a freight car by laying on the truss rods that supported the center of the car through tension. Often associated with hobos as a means of travel. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling.
Hi all, very quick production update time. I want to take a moment to thank Skylar of New York, because Skylar and his mother submitted a very kind email through the website contact form, and I am very happy that I could provide you both with information. I hope you enjoy the hobby, Skylar. Uh, also, another note on production, um, I got a new microphone. I'm right now recording on my old input source right now for comparison, so hope you all enjoy. Um, and also, given the time of year, uh, it is model train season, so I wish you all a very happy excuse to run trains in the living room day. Happy holidays, everybody.